We want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional, unceded Algonquin territory. On this episode, we talk about climate protest and YouTube, as well as theater and anti-oppression pedagogy. And what happens when a superhero goes camping? This is Beyond the Classroom. I'm Phil Primo. I'm Billy Flynn, and this is The Department. Welcome to episode two, everybody. Uh, We hope you enjoyed listening to our first full-length episode last month featuring uh, Alexis Shotwell. Uh, For first-time listeners, this podcast is really all about teaching and learning what happens inside and outside the classroom. And we feature uh, guest interviews with a whole range of different people uh, from our department here at Carleton. And to returning listeners, thank you so much for tuning in again. It's been a few weeks since we've seen each other. Uh, So what's new in your world? Uh, How was uh, reading break? Uh, Reading break was the same for everyone. It wasn't a break at all, uh, but um, it was was a, a good hiatus. Yeah. How was your uh, reading break, Phil? My reading break uh, wasn't a break. Right. So I was working uh, hard at work, uh, completing uh, a dissertation draft, which is now done. Congratulations. uh, So that's that's that. And uh, we've had uh, nothing but snow. Just snow, snow, and more snow. Yeah, good old snow. (laughs) I guess that's, uh, that's what Canada is, right? Yes. Billy, we have mail. We have mail. We have mail. Folks, we produce this podcast. Uh, We get some very smart and engaged folks to talk to us. And yes, you, you the listener, have responded in kind. We've received a few messages, either from Twitter uh, or an email or a review. So now this segment, uh, the mailbag segment, is the time that we read them. Um, So let's start with uh, a student uh, from Carleton wrote to us on Twitter, uh, SMT, writes, fantastic work, guys. I'm a sociology student at Carleton. Prof Flynn taught me intro. Thanks for the podcast. Great selection there. Yeah, like so us, a yeah. little bit of legacy yeah. going on. Uh, <laughs> SMT also uh, says, what up, Billy? Uh, that was a... So uh, again from Twitter, we have uh, Jana. And Jana writes, I enjoyed the episode with my morning coffee. It's a great way to listen. It is. Uh, Loved it when Wally said the department is a place where students survive or thrive. Uh, Loved it when Bruce talked about supervising as craft and when Alexis and Danielle theorized about science fiction, a work of art. Uh, Thank you so much, Jana. That's a very kind review. Mm. And a fellow podcaster uh, reached out, Skip, from the Skip and Josh Sports Show, uh, wrote, I really enjoyed the first episode. The production was top-notch. Your interviewee had a great radio voice, and the interplay between Phil and Billy was well done. You know how first episodes go. They can be a little rocky, but this one had a good flow. Isn't this amazing, Billy? Amazing, Phil. Uh, if you would like a shout out and to make us feel really good about making this podcast, send us a note or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, let us know that you did. Uh, if you think we could be better, tell us that as well. We accept constructive criticism, I think. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Here's how to get in touch with us. We are on Twitter at departmentpod. Our email is info at departmentpodcast.ca. And we have a website where you can listen to all the episodes and bonus stuff that we'll put out there for free. That is www.departmentpodcast.ca. All right, so this episode is all about students, uh, undergrad, masters, PhD students, and uh, some of the things they're doing in the department and elsewhere. Uh, Sam Pei and Warren are both using the arts, video and theatre respectively uh, to find a wider audience for two issues that are important to them and obviously uh, important to the rest of us as well. Environmental and social justice as well as uh, anti-oppression uh, forms of pedagogy. Sampe's video will also be available uh, on our website and uh, hopefully we'll also be able to put up a, a, an edited clip from Theatre of the Oppressed as well in the yeah. coming weeks. Yeah, that'd be great. 
So let's listen to that Sampe interview now. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning, Wednesday, the 19th of February. You're very welcome. Thank you. Kind of start off, uh, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, what's, what's your deal as a student? Yeah, I'm a third year undergraduate student here at Carleton University. I'm in the sociology department and I'm taking a minor in environmental studies. Okay. Right. And uh, we've worked together before, haven't we? Yeah, I've yeah. worked as an enriched support program facilitator for your course, Sociology 1001, okay. um, where I was basically leading like three-hour weekly workshops for students who are trying to gain academic um, entrance into sure. a degree program. Okay. Right. And um, this um, movie you, you got an award for on YouTube, yeah? Uh, was that obviously tied into your uh, minor in environmental studies as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was going to attend the climate strike either way, and I saw that there was this opportunity to create a film around um, climate change and climate protest in your city. Okay. So my background in environmental studies definitely urged me to go participate in the protest and I managed to get a film out of it so that was pretty cool okay so, so you were at the climate strike on the day yeah yeah, yeah. back in uh, September I believe uh, what, what was it like being down there I heard it was a pretty pretty big turnout yeah it was a great turnout I mean I think actions like this are important right. and I'd like to see them happen continually and regularly so it was really wonderful to see the first one happen here in Ottawa nice okay and you brought your camera that day, did you? Yeah, I actually brought my iPhone and a gimbal. So that was like okay. the two things that I had with me. A gimbal is one of those things you put the phones on, is it? Just yeah, for the... a gimbal is like a, yeah. a stabilizer. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a chicken's head where the chicken's head can like stay in one place if you move the body. That's like okay. what a gimbal is. Okay. So what was that experience like uh, being at a protest, but then also recording a protest? I think it's interesting because... It's hard to ask people permission to film them when you're at a protest, but I think when you attend a protest, you're kind of giving up permission to be filmed. Right. So it's kind of like this give and take where I asked a lot. I asked like if I had people look into the camera, I had to ask them, "Is it cool if I like get a shot of you and your sign?" Right. Yeah, yeah, and people yeah. are obviously really receptive to that because they're there to make a scene and to be seen. Um, and I thought also it was just really it was really awesome to be surrounded by other like filmmakers and photographers who were kind of at the front of the protest right. getting to see these people like move through the streets and it's like um as a crowd it was really a really great experience and like uh, how did you manage to get involved with youtube uh because this was a, a kind of a key part of this video right yeah so the mobile film festival youtube's creators for change kind of put out like an open call for okay. all emerging filmmakers to submit and the whole idea was that by making it on your iPhone it made it a lot more accessible so you didn't need like a whole crew with well, you right, yeah, and you didn't need yeah. like a really great camera like a red camera to like shoot this one right. minute film um, so they put out an open call and I managed to like sneak in right before the deadline and submit my film for it so it was pretty sweet nice yeah was was there um, was it up to you to decide the time limit or was it like three minutes max or it was like what strictly one minute one minute yeah okay. so it was it was a lot of editing trying to get it down just like to the very <laughs> second where it was uh, exactly 60 seconds and uh, you won an award for your your contribution I won an award they gave it to me in French and oh. my French is not great so okay. I kind of stood there just <laughs> smiling and nodding um, but yeah I won an award for uh, L'Extra Court it was okay. like um, it's um, a catalog of films in France where basically your film will be premiered before a feature film. So oh, the nice. theaters in France get to kind of choose from this catalog what film they want to play. And so they're looking for shorter films, like one right. minute film would work really well. So I basically gave them the rights to play it in France and they now have it in the catalog, um, which is really I mean, sweet nice. for me because it's great exposure yeah. for me as a filmmaker Absolutely. to have that. And yeah. also it's just pretty cool that people will be seeing my, my stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you think there's a pedagogical value in having these sorts of films float around the world, being seen in uh, different languages and things like this? I think what's really interesting for me is that like people in France will be seeing this protest that happened in Ottawa. Right. Yeah. So I really like this idea that you're sharing on like a global scale. And when we were, when I was at the film festival, you saw films that were like made in just around the world, like all like across cultures and across languages, people were making films um, about climate change. And I think just to see that people are like united under this one umbrella of like fighting for better climate justice I think was really wonderful to see at the film festival and you were in Paris for the award were you 
Yeah, yeah, they very generously like flew me out to Paris. Nice. So okay. I got to go and it was my first time. So that was a really sweet experience. Yeah. And also just to talk to other filmmakers who are around the world and right. have that networking opportunity was really amazing. Was it like a bit like the Grammy? You know, like do you kind of go up on a stage and they go give your name and stuff? Or Yeah, um, <laughs> it was a bit like that. <laughs> um, yeah, they called my name up when I won the award and I went up and I accepted the award cool. in French. So I... Again, just kind of right. smiled and nodded. Um, and I gave like a short little acceptance speech. And then they did a little interview with me for broadcast, uh, French broadca- broadcast. Mm. So In French was, too, yeah? Wow. Uh, they did that one in English, ah, thankfully. Okay. Right, fair enough. <laughs> I'm not sure how well I'd be able to respond <laughs> right. in French. Um, but yeah, it was a really, it was a neat event. They had like this whole theater um, booked, a cool. really great space for filmmakers to network and chat. So it was a really awesome nice. experience, yeah. How do you see the role of sociology informing that sort of activist and ecological work that you're doing? I mean, I think being a sociology student has made me really critical of the role of protests. Right. Um, yeah. I think it made me really critical. I mean, it's great that I filmed this protest and that I like got all this exposure, but I also see that it's kind of just for show one protest and that like real change stems from continual action. So I think mostly being a sociology student has made me really critical of film in general. And then also the films that I make and like what I participate in. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer and say like (laughs) the climate change protest was awful. But I think that like seeing sustained action would really be the next step towards like achieving better climate justice. How did you get into film? Did you were you making your own movies years ago, or what, yeah. what was the, the the trip there? I mean, I've always been making like little movies, like on my computer when I was like, okay. just on my laptop camera when I was like a kid, and then I like slowly progressed to actual camera work. Um, but when I graduated high school, I was also really interested in like social justice and activism, okay. so I went into sociology. Um, but now that I'm completing my degree this year, I'm hoping to pursue film more seriously. Right. Okay. Um, just in the coming year, because. It is like the, what I'm passionate about: documentary film, and then also fiction filmmaking. So, okay. Well, yeah. Have Have you made like um like shorter sort of just mini documentary series or something along those lines? Yeah, I've made a couple different pieces. I uh, I filmed an artist, um, a painter in Budapest, and I made that into a small okay. video for him. And then I also traveled to Slovakia this past year in 2019, and I created a short film out of that, just okay. documenting my partner's family and how they're interacting. So right. I made a couple of short films to add to my like cinematic showreel overall. Right. Um, and then, of course, this mobile film festival. So uh, are you going to do a, sort of a, a something academic or more sort of work in a job uh, to develop those skills? Yeah, I was recently, I was actually accepted into UCL's master's program for okay. documentary filmmaking. Um, Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. I found it yesterday. Um, Breaking news, everyone. I know. (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, that's one option for me. But I also, I'm very tempted just to kind of take a break from school and get work like on a film set and actually like do some really hands-on projects. So I'm not entirely sure, but I know that my next steps, I want them to be hands-on and practical. Okay. So you're moving to Vancouver, so yeah. I actually was... (laughs) Looking at flights yeah. yesterday, so yeah. yes, yeah. sounds like <laughs> the logical, possible. yeah, logical place to be with yeah. the movie industry. Right? Exactly. Also, temperate climate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about this women in film project you're working on at the moment. Yeah. So I'm currently completing a sociology practicum, actually, with uh, Digi Sixty, which is an Ottawa Filmmakers Festival. Okay. Um, and my role with Digi Sixty will be like kind of heading this podcast series. Um, that's revolves around greater representation and women in film. Um, so I am having on, I think I have scheduled six guests right now, but we're going for eight and we're going to be recording a different episode for each week. Nice. Um, and I'm also leading a panel on March 8th, just around women in film um, for Digi60. Okay. Yeah. In, in terms of, say, Canadian context, uh, has there been much of a sort of, obviously, a lack of representation in women in film? Has there been a kind of a push in recent years to, in a particular genres of film, documentary or anything? I mean, I'm really hoping I'm going to learn more about that through the expert panelists that we're going to have on. Um, I think it's going to be really an interesting opportunity because all of our panelists are from Ottawa or kind of the surrounding Ontario region. Um, So it'll be interesting to learn about representation in film and television in like an Ontario context. Right. Um, 
Yeah, we're also, we're focusing on kind of how stories can be told in a fair and balanced way. Right. And I think that's really important. You see that a lot now in television and in film. And I think that that'll be a really interesting topic to broach in terms of like, as a filmmaker, what's your role in telling stories in a fair and balanced way? Right. How did you get um, interested in this project? How did it come about? Yeah, I've really wanted to record a podcast series for a while and I've had nothing to talk about really. Okay. <laughs> I felt like yeah. I've like had a lack of content, but I've really wanted to do this. Um, so when Digi60 kind of like broached the idea of maybe doing a podcast series, I was like, yes, I will, I will do it for you. Like, just give me the micro, give me all the wow. equipment and I'll be <laughs> right. there. Um, so it was a really great opportunity that kind of just arose from the Digi60 Filmmakers Festival. Okay. And my practicum supervisor, Tanya Davidson, was really awesome about reaching out to the film department here at, um, or the, right. the media and communications department here at Carleton. Right. And they managed to get me this placement with Digi60. Nice. Um, so it was kind of like a cross-discipline practicum all right that's awesome i imagine uh, it was fairly easy to uh find six volunteers to to come on or was it i think i mean i think people in general like will be willing to be interviewed and kind of talk about themselves and their work so um i've had some really great responses from the the guests that we're going to have on um and i mean from the panelists as well like people have been really interested in also doing a podcast and then also being recorded on the panel so i think there's a lot that's going to come out of like this, these March recording dates for right. Digi60, which I'm really excited about. And I imagine the kind of recording of that is part of the process of representation too, is it? Definitely. I mean, the fact, like, looking for guests that do come from, like, a diverse background and do have, like, different perspectives to tell in terms of representation mm-hmm. in film and television was, like, definitely a really important part of reaching out to potential guests right. um, during this these past couple months. So I think, yeah, you're definitely right about that. Yeah. Do you have a name for it? Um... We don't actually have no? a name for it yet. Oh my goodness. That's definitely a marketing thing that we're going to have to work <laughs> on in the next couple of weeks. The first one comes out um, following March, the March 8th Sunday. So I guess the week of March 9th, the first episode will come out. Okay. Um, but the pod, the panel on March 8th is Women in Film Vision 2020. So right, that's the nice. name of that. We'll be eagerly waiting for the release of those episodes. Amazing. And I'll be eagerly awaiting the re- release of this sociology podcast. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Sampei, thank you very much again. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I also had the opportunity to talk with uh, Warren Clark uh, yeah. during reading break. Uh, I've known Warren since he began at Carlton uh, in 2016 uh, in the PhD program. And uh, I think using theatre and acting uh, to explore issues around oppression is a really interesting way to approach uh, teaching and learning in general. He's been working with the Glebe high school students and uh, Carlton undergrad students in his uh, Social 3910, 3910 course. Theatre of the Oppressed has been running for two years now uh, and it's uh, hosted at the Dominion Chalmers Centre. This year there was a really big crowd there um, it's great to see it growing every year, and uh, let's uh, let's hear from Warren now. Well, uh, Warren Clark, thank you very much for uh, apparently sprinting all the way here this morning. Um, uh, we really appreciate you showing up, um, and. Uh, you're here to talk about your uh, gender and society through the arts course that you've been teaching for the last, this is the third year now, I yes, believe? Yes, third, yeah. uh, third uh, semester. And, um, you know, just the FYI, we're, we're looking, I'm looking to change the name, actually. Okay. Yeah, I think it. Uh, the name doesn't, uh, based on student feedback, uh, it doesn't uh, speak to what this course actually right. you know, does for students. So. Um, but yeah, can, yeah. So we're looking to change the name. All right. Any uh, any thoughts on uh, the new name? Yeah, somewhat. Uh, you know, incorporating the, the word intersectionality right in the in the in the uh, in the descript in the, the title right. Um, you know, because we're looking at young people, we're looking at race, we're looking at sexuality, you know, gender, you know, abled body versus disabled sure. body, you know, learning dis- uh, learning uh, opportunities or or, right. or concerns. So. Um, you know, it, it just encompasses so many things when it comes to young people, particularly, which this course focuses on. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned intersectionality. You mentioned a few other things, but um, who are you? What What are you doing in, in in the department? PhD candidate, fourth year. 
uh, you know, fourth season, like I'm in the NBA or something here. All right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, sociology uh, with a concentration of political economy and, you know, the work, uh, just starting with academia first or my academic profile, uh, looking at uh, intersectionality, as I mentioned, uh, youth cultures, particularly black young men and their experiences is in uh, youth employment training programs in Ontario and Quebec through a cross comparison. Okay. I'll stop there. I am a father of one uh, 17-year-old daughter who is just right now, but uh, <laughs> love her needless to say. Um, also, I have a son who's 10 years old okay. uh, who is looks a lot like me. Okay. <laughs> it's, just, right. it's just crazy how this guy <laughs> is like my splitting image right now, right? And um, so to me, I'm, uh, you know, I'm all about uh, working in the community. That's, that's I, you know, I think I literally breathe and sleep that. I've been very fortunate to have really close people in my life to get me to this point. You know, I mentored Jim Hayer Sr. and other mentor, Jim Hayer Jr. Um, really, uh, really good people that I have, have had in my life and I continue to have in my life. And um, Was it Jim Hayward Sr. who got you into Theater of the Oppressed or was it somebody else? I'm kind of curious to know how yeah, you... Yeah, um... And and I appreciate the question. You know, I'm I'm gonna try not to tear up right now. I'm, he's uh, he's not well. Okay. So right. I, I will, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll definitely say yes. You know, he's um, you know, since I've known him since I've been eleven, since I was eleven years old, he's he's definitely been that uh, person who's not only been a mentor but someone who's really encouraged me to see my own pot- uh, potential. Right. Um, and you know, through his you know approach. Uh, to community and um, you know encouraging uh, you know younger folks, uh, marginalized young people in Toronto, particularly or specifically, you know it was um, an eye opener for me, right. you know, to get into this line of work that I do. With that being said, and the amount of work I've done prior to you know using academia as a vehicle to you know do the work I do, you know I always wanted to know more. I wanted to. Right. You know, be a, an individual who's open-minded enough uh, and ask questions, critical and uh, questions to seek to understand, you know, people and their lived experiences, particularly young people. Um, so, yeah, it definitely would start with, with, with Hearst, as we call him, his nickname. Right, okay. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, why I'm here. You know, it's funny I'm even, you know, talking about this, you know. It's, uh, you know, the first year being here at Carleton, my first year of the doctor program, you know, I was uh, I was thinking, you know, did Hearst bless me with a beautiful opportunity or did he curse me? You right, know, yeah, yeah. Um, it was, you know, and I say that because like the work is it's heart work, you right. know, and um, with that heart work, it could be hard work. Right. And, um, you know, the amount of, you know, because, you know, I'm an individual, I, I, I wear my heart on my sleeve, right. you know, and that's just what it is. And, um, you know, you know, being that type of person, you know, you, you try to answer every phone call, you try to you know, meet with every person who wants to speak with you, even if it's five, 10 minutes or, you know, two minutes or what what have you. And it could be exhausting. Right. You know, there's, there's, you know, the only time I really find time to do the work that I need to do is after hours, Yeah. you know, like yeah. eight o'clock and onwards where right. people are like, Hey, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to stop bothering Warren. And that's indication where I can like sit and do what I got to do. Yeah. Right. I've often found this to be the case with people who work in a community, especially with youth. Um, and, you're doing something a little different uh, with theater. Yeah. Uh, so could you give us kind of the rundown? What is Theater of the Oppressed? Yeah, so Theater of the Oppressed is not coined by Warren Clark. Let's just, let's just acknowledge that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Theater of the Oppressed is, um, <laughs> is coined by Augusto Boel, a Latin American scholar who used theater to then talk about, um, you know, social issues that are uh, surround people who are marginalized uh, you know spaces or states what he 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 noticed is that you know the theater in his time was only speaking to uh, the lived experiences of middle class and higher higher class people right and with that being said it wasn't a true reflection of what was going on in in what he saw and what he was you know dealing with you know around his community so instead of just getting people to speak to that marginalized reality, he then took it a step further to say, well, like, how can we get people to really understand what's going on? How could we get people to actually critically engage with social oppression? And then part of the theater of the press is something called spectacting. Right. And spectacting is where the audience gets the opportunity to insert themselves into the play and try to change the trajectory of, trajectory of the play from oppressive to anti-oppressive. It's done in a way where it's 
Uh, it's a do no harm approach, which we right. try our best to uh, maintain. Uh, I'll explain that in, in, a, in a moment. Where everybody in the room is learning, and the unique part about uh, you know this this uh, you know this concept or framework, the press, is that the young people are the one that's the, uh, leading the the charge. Right, right. Okay. It's the young people who are um, demonstrating their voice with confidence through the theater. To say, hey, yeah, we're young people too, and we matter. We got our own issues going on, right? right? And uh, you know, as adults, we sometimes forget that because mm-hmm. when we get to the many of us, when we get to the, the age of adulthood, we then say, well, we got to be just adult focused. We just right. got to. If we have kids, it's like, okay, we got to you know make sure our kids are okay. Um, but what about youth generally? Right. right, like youth face racism, youth face sexism, youth face different types of discriminations as well, and no one's exempt from it, right? And right. We get, um, you know, more so in our feelings when things happen to young people. Um, for example, the young, when the young boy who was, uh, you know, fairly stabbed in Hamilton based mm-hmm. on bullying, you know, the, the community came together. That right. was beautiful, right? But were we thinking collectively as adults, like, hey, could this possibly happen to a young person? And if so, what can we, what measures can we put in place to stop that? And it's not to say there's nothing happening. There's no boots on the ground, but collectively as a society in terms of the political implications of like we have to think you know we have to critically engage with politics we have to critically engage with like what it means to be you know black in canada or what it right. means to be LG- to us lgbtq um it's only really looked at from a, an adult lens yeah right and you know we don't take the time to understand like what young people are encountering what they're facing and how we can support them and uh how did you find it working with it's high school it's the Glebe, the Glebe collegiate school uh, and the students that you're working with. How did you find working with uh, young people, you know, sort of high school students again? Yeah, amazing. You yeah. know, I, I I, think I still, I think I have the Peter Pan syndrome. Right. You know, that's what I like to call it, <laughs> meaning like I think I'm young forever. Right. You know, um, <laughs> you know, my my go-to uh, to connect with these young people is to, uh, you know, wear a pair of Jordans, you know, wear a, a tech fleece Nike outfit. Sure. Which they they can re, you know resemble optically and say hey that Warren guy he's wearing something cool there right, right. Um, and that's how I like I, I, I get in you know um, is showing that you know you know my attire it matches yours right right and I'm not that professor coming in from Carleton University and I'm trying to teach you something and bore you with all these theoretical frameworks right so it's it's like a, it's like a sneak attack right <laughs> right yeah. and um, you know being vulnerable with them. You know, vulnerable to the point where it's like I I've been there too. I know right. what's what's going on. Here's a, here's an example. You know what I faced, and doing that has allowed me to connect with these young people. Right, right, and you know the fist apps have turned to you know, to hugs. Um, the hugs have turned to hey Warren, do you have a moment? I want to share something with you. Right, um, and then that's turned into Warren, can you advocate for me? Mm-hmm. Right, so it's been it's been beautiful. It's been real beautiful, and. Um, I look forward to continue the relationship, you know, for as how many months or years to come. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like it's a lot more than your regular theater participation. Kind of, uh, you know, sort of somebody goes to practice, they do it for an hour or two, and then they go home. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, and the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about it is that these these young people at the Glebe, um, and not to negate the the Carlton students because yeah. you know they're important too. Um, you know, they're able to you know be a part of something that they see value right. and they see their own growth as it's, it's happening um, because that's close, you know, the relationship with myself and the other Carlton student, students, they also see it as so valuable that they want to come back. Right. You know, we've got three students has done, <laughs> has done the, uh, the workshop or the project three times now nice. from there. Okay. And, and they, they can't get enough. It's, it's so tumbling to see that, you know, we, we, um, it's not just Warren Clark, but we are working with these young people to actually, you know, make a difference in their lives. And uh, judging by the size of the crowd that was there uh, this year, it seems to really be snowballing in terms of, you know, more people coming, more more uh, involvement from outside yeah. the community too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, that's humbling too, right? Uh, each time we do this event, it just keeps getting bigger if more people are coming. Um, now I'm going to, you know, take something on the parking lot I had mentioned, you know, meeting in terms of, you know, like the safety of these young people, which, you know, we have to also be mindful of this project, right? Mm-hmm. And not safety physically, nothing has happened. Um, yeah. But, you know, these young people are playing roles of an oppressor, mm-hmm. some of them, and some are being, playing roles of the oppressed. And 
Um, for some, you know, people in the audience, what I have noticed, especially the last uh, event we had, was uh, I think some people thought the oppressor was a real oppressor, right? Right, okay. and right. Yeah. they were taking it to heart, and it's very traumatic, you know. Like it's that's that's called a spade a spade. It's not easy to see someone oppressing somebody, sure, um, regardless yeah. if it's fictional or not. I think it does bring back memories for some people in the crowd to be like, darn, like I've been through that. But right. you know, here's the unapologetic way of me saying this: it that's what you're supposed to feel, right? right. You know, because yeah. we were young, but we were, we were all we were all young at one point. We all faced something, right? How do we stop the oppression among young people? So it sounds to me that the project is part educational part performance, but also part therapeutic as well. Yep. And um, do you see your role as a co-researcher, co-community worker, youth worker sort of thing? Because it sounds like you're kind of in between those two. Yeah, I, I wear many hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like I mentioned, it's, it's heart work. You know, it's, uh, it's work that you know, it, you, you got to, if you care about this, you know, this subject area or even something close to it or just, uh, you know, social oppression and, and anti-oppressive frameworks, like, you're going to probably wear many hats. It's just what it is, you know, like, you got to be prepared for that. I think that's the beautiful thing about just being human, mm. you know, is just not looking at race, not looking at sexuality, not looking at gender and saying, listen, there's another human being in front of me. I'm human too. Yeah, we can connect. Let's talk. All right. The only difference between myself and the young people is his age, right, you know. Right. And but other than that, like we're we're human. We're the same people, you know. We bleed the same. Uh, I wish when I was growing up that um, there could have been like some sort of interest in theater stuff that had to do with you know society rather than you know sort of uh, Christmas pantomimes and stuff like that. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there was nothing like that when I was when I was. No. Uh, no. Like, is it a fairly new thing in in the kind of Canadian context to kind of have? theater or sort of arts that engages with social issues do you know or in terms of young people uh i have not uh come across this yet maybe uh, again i don't the world is so big right uh, but i haven't come across anybody who's doing specifically with young people in a school right and connected with a university right, right? and you know the, the benefit of you know that relationship meaning you know, uh, high school and post-secondary post uh, institute like Carleton University is that we're really engaging the racialized and marginalized youth, particularly who do not see the value in going to post-secondary education yeah. um, to actually, you know, get a, a experience working with a professor, working with, you know, a university student saying, oh, this isn't actually a bad thing going to university, right? Right. Um, so there's, there's all these benefits that are happening with these young people as they, you know, do this, uh, get involved with this project. Huh. So do you think like they'd have a lot of intimidation or sort of just uh, sort of, it's it's a strange land of university and third level education? For some of them in the beginning, yeah, it is a strange land. Right. Um, it is strange to actually be in close proximity with a professor yeah. instead of a teacher, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. You know, they, they've never, many of them don't get in close proximity, as I mentioned, with a professor, you know, with a chair of a department with a dean, right? Right. And those are those could be intimidating, you know, t titles for some young people, right? Holy, the professor, oh, yeah. right? Like, for example, when, you know, if X-Men fans out here, when people hear yes. Professor X, <laughs> people, you know, in, in the movies, you see Professor X is rolling through the, you know, the halls, and people are like, oh, Professor, Professor X, you know? Um, so it's like the same thing, right? It's like, but I don't use the title professor with these young people. I right. don't. I, I think that it's going to create that hierarchy and, to, and you know manifest certain emotions and feelings with these young people. Right. I'm call me Warren, yep. you know, you know, or call me that dude with the Jordans. Right. You know, so <laughs> whatever I can do to connect with these young people to see that hey, you know what, university isn't bad. This project's actually going to be beneficial and a do no harm and a positive approach. I'll do it. Right. right. You know, I'll be the clown in the room. I don't mm -hmm. mind. How have the Carleton students uh, found it so far working with high school students, working in this very, uh, you know, uh, innovative uh, way of uh, doing a course? It, they've, it's been very positive, very right. positive with these, uh, with the Carleton students. Um, you know, I'll say this, you know, how I frame it to these students is if you are uh, wanting to work with young people in the future, uh, well, one, this could be the course for you. Right. However, it's important to acknowledge that your relationship that you build from start to end is important as well. 
if you're not taking this course seriously in terms of showing up and being here, you're going to you're going to you know make it uncomfortable right. to you know create a relationship of solidarity with these young people, right? Right. And if you think of any work that you know social workers, particularly with young people, the first thing is just showing up, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Just yeah. being present, right? And you know I think with this course has really encouraged many of the Carleton students who have taken it to say, well, you know what, like. Yeah, I got to show up for this course. Right. Right. I can't. This is not a course where I, I can skip three, four classes and like think I'm going to pass. Right. That, this is not what this is. You, one thing I'll say about the syllabus, you know, it's it's heavily reliant on you, your participation. Right. If you don't show, you you can leave. And if you do everything else, it's say you can leave with like a 50. Right. You know, yeah. if you show up and you actually participate, you know, you can get a good grade in this course. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, for yeah. a show that, or for a course that centers partly around theater, then participation you would ex- you know yeah you would expect there to to the person to have to participate in order to learn anything too, right? It's to encourage these you know Carlton students again who see value and work with young people to understand the value of showing up. Right. Right. Like, don't be if you're thinking about being a youth worker, if you're thinking about being a social worker, you know, I try to encourage them. Don't think about just yeah, I just got to go to work. Right. Because if you're doing this job to just go to work, you're you're in the wrong field. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you're dealing with young people at this point. Right. So it's important to show that you see the value of just being there, and just just giving you know a hoot. Yeah. You know about you know, this project, particularly your relationship with these young people. Hmm. Now we call it theater of the oppressed, yeah. uh, but it's not a theater course. Um, do students need to know? theatrical skills or is this something that they kind of pick up along the way or is that not really a focus? I think for me, I still see it as a theater course uh, because of the the acting, the script writing that's involved and then the actual final product to get on stage to act it out, right? No, you don't have to be, uh, have a drama you know, background, you don't right, have a yeah. theatrical yeah. background. No, that's not what it is. Yeah. Uh, what we ask is for students, all students, including and even you know, myself and uh, Deborah Grinnell, can't, I can't forget her. She's a huge part of this as well. Is you know, let's be vulnerable with each other, you know, and to build that relationship of solidarity, to actually understand, you know, everyone's lived experience to perspective to a point where we can, you know, build strong bonds, right? Right. Um, and then once we do that, then let's talk about what you want to talk, what what type of play that you want to put on, you know, for a broader audience. Um, and that's where you get, you know, ideas based on lived experience. Right. So as much as it's theatrical, you know, it's all about, so it's a story that these young people, um, you know, all, all young people, Carlton and Glebe, um, that they're telling based on a, that's something that's happened. Right. No, it's not about, yeah, you have to study a line and you have to, you know, stick to the, the lines. No, it's, it's, there's a lot of improvising. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, lived experience in, in these plays. Right? And, right. and that's the whole point to get these, uh, young people to demonstrate to a crowd to say like listen this is this is what's happening to me right mm. no we're not going to be specific and say it happened to that individual right but it, it's a it's broad enough to say well these are things that people are going through and it's for people in the room who come to these places to say well wow i didn't like i didn't think it from that perspective or you know now that i gained this understanding i can approach it differently right yeah yeah two-way two-way learning yeah mm-hmm. exactly because that's that's one of the things I found most interesting about the, the the play itself is that the audience members are active by volu- by choice yeah. active participants if they wish to be in in the actual the the ongoing drama that they see on stage yeah yeah and that's and that's important as well right is um, the audience gets gets to get on st- gets up and participates yeah now even if you're an audience member and you're not participating that's valuable learning for you too. Mm-hmm. Because you're actually seeing like, oh wait, like she was sitting right in front of me. She actually got up right. and went yeah. on there. Yeah. Wow. Like, how come I didn't do that? Or maybe if I was to do that, what would I have done differently? And now that's a conversation you don't you don't need to have with us or with me. But if you're having those conversations with yourself while that play is happening, then we did something good for you. Right. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Or you did something good for yourself. Right. Right. Because you were able to actually sit down, critically think about a topic that you weren't thinking about before and say wow you know like i didn't see that one happening right Right. so so is that your measure of success for for this course yeah i would say yeah 
you know, it's it's all about uh, that two-way learning that you just mentioned. It's all about with people, you know, coming into the space and sharing and learning and laughing and, you know, being emotional and, you know, in a, in a way of that, that empowers, right. you know, um, and we don't want people, you know, we don't want people leaving emotionally and crying. That's, we don't want right. that. But, you know, I, I will say, and as I mentioned earlier, that you know, it, some of these scenes are, are, are traumatic, right. you know, and, you know, it's um, something, you know, they're difficult conversations to have. Right. You know, we usually think of education and learning as taking place within classrooms. But when you kind of flip that on its head and then you kind of turn a theater space or theater into a type of classroom, a kind of a social classroom, um, a lot of other sort of interest and possibilities uh, can happen when when you kind of turn it on its head. Huh? You know, I, I think being in the university space, there's a lot of benefits, mm-hmm. you know, and you get to, you know, learn, you get to critically think, you get to engage with your, your colleagues and peers. But that critical thinking, you know, in many people's minds is only done in the university space, right? right. And when you take that outside the university and you bring into the you know broader you know auto community, for example, and you have these conversations and you sprinkle some phenomenology in there, intersectionality and you know critical race theory, but you don't really tell them that's what it is. Right. But you get them talking about it. Guess what? They're just doing the same thing we were doing in the university space. Yeah. The, what we do in the university space right. without knowing it. Yeah. You understand what I mean? Yeah. But the, you know the concern is that people don't see themselves here. You know, it doesn't matter. A lot of people, not just mm-hmm. black or ACB youth, but a lot of you know, young, marginalized young, young people don't see themselves in the university space. So if we're able to bring that to them and say, well, here, here's a, here's a little taste of phenomenology. Here's a little taste of intersectionality. And they're like, wait, wait, but this is, this is pretty good. Yeah. You know, yeah. get them hooked. You're right. Yeah. And once you get them hooked, you know, they're like, I want more. Yeah. Right. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Come to the, come, come, come here. Yeah. Come to the university. <laughs> We can give you some more of that, you know, Absolutely. or come to this next event. We'll give you a little bit more, right? And then you can get them thinking critically about, okay, well, I had a taste of that, but, you know, I want more of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? When they, you know, get to their last year of high school, you know, where, where do I find that? Right. Oh, I remember I did that, that project, Theater of the Oppressed with, with Warren and Deborah and Carlton. You know, oh, I'm going to Carlton. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then successfully, here, here, comes, here comes some humor, right? <laughs> Successfully, I've I've been able to turn a lot of you know high school students uh, to think that sociology or anthropology is the is a discipline for them. Absolutely, right? it, so, is. Oh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, it is right. But it's the so, only one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we need to we need to turn more of them. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's been it's been rewarding that way. Warren, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, learning about theater of the oppressed, and I really hope uh, to see this project grow and continue in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Those interviews with uh, Sampe and Warren were uh, really interesting uh, to hear about the different kind of uh, projects that they have uh, yeah. going uh, at the at the moment, um, and it also leads to some interesting questions. You know, um, when you think about how we usually associate education and learning with you know four walls, classroom institutions, yeah. Yeah. Uh, things like YouTube, um, you know, they really are fantastic, um, and they can be fantastic learning aids. You know, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't know how many things I've actually learned from these DIY kind of YouTube tutorials that yeah, I, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I look at every time. Um, so uh, Warren's uh, theater of the oppressed as well is really interesting because uh, basically he's uh, turning uh, a theater uh, into a type of classroom for you know social justice uh, goals. So yeah, um, uh, it it does show how how varied contexts uh, in which education can occur for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it allows us to ask kind of like where does learning occur, right? Like does yeah. it occur online uh, mm-hmm. or does it have to occur in a classroom? Can it occur in a theater? And, you know, the theater isn't all that different from a classroom, really yeah. fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, uh, I happen to teach in a theater, uh, the KMTH theater. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, there's not too much of a difference between that for sure. Yeah, but the lecturing, I guess, component is a lot different between what we normally do in a three-hour lecture hall mm-hmm. and what Warren's doing um, with the Theatre of the Oppressed. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, actually, it, there, there, there's a lot more sort of uh, stage management. There's a lot more kind of management of the play itself um, and of the people involved. Uh, so, yeah, it's a totally different sort of setup compared to my my usual lectures, yeah. Yeah. 
And um, so I watched uh, Sanpei's video a few times, so right. a minute long. Mm -hmm. I invite others to watch it as well mm -hmm. because there is so much going on in it. Mm -hmm. um, it's very condensed, but you have the the, the images yeah. uh, of, of protesters that are also holding signs. You have an underlaid uh, sort of commentary uh, of people talking. Um, and then there's also this kind of transcript uh, of what people are saying, right? There's a lot going on in the video. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I learned something from it, even though it was only a minute long, which is okay. like really interesting. It doesn't need to be like this long sort of seminar drawn out thing, right? Like learning can happen in these short, short sort of snippets. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one of the things that struck me as well was just the, um, you know, the, like you said, the condensing of things like that. If you think of, say, how many people were there in Ottawa that day. Yeah. Uh, how many different sort of signs and, you know, different uh, segments of the population were there. And uh, it did a great job of actually condensing a lot. To continue our theme of Beyond the Classroom, where learning and teaching takes place beyond the university, it is not every day that we get to talk to a superhero. At least, I don't. Of course, without their masks and personas, superheroes are normal people doing extraordinary things. So we shouldn't be too surprised that there's been a superhero watching over us in academia as well. From libraries to laboratories, and from mysteries to malfeasance, places of learning are ideal for a detective superhero. Yes, I'm talking about Dr. Academic Batgirl, and I had the pleasure to connect uh, with her remotely earlier this week. Let's listen to that now. Dr. Academic Batgirl, welcome to the Department Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. In the context of this uh, interview, I think I'm going to call you Barbara. <laughs> I love it. It's so badass. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Barbara, uh, y you've been on Twitter for quite some time now. Yeah, you're a little bit of a, an academic Twitter celebrity. Um, oh, thank you. Why don't you uh, let us know a little bit about yourself and uh, your origin story? Myself as a human and academic, I am originally from Boston, which means that I'm kind of American. But that's okay, <laughs> because I have, I have since been saved. I am now a Canadian citizen. I took the, the exam that lets you be Canadian, you know, you have to answer all this obscure yes. Canadian history that nobody really knows about unless you're an immigrant. Yeah. Um, so I am a Canadian citizen now, and I did my undergrad work in Boston. And then um, I spent a couple years at Edinburgh University in Scotland, which was a wonderful place to be a student. Mm. And then um, I did my PhD at Cambridge University in England. And it's a funny story. I was, I was when I was a grad student at Edinburgh. Um, one of my supervisors said, "Well, now you'll go to do a PhD." And I just <laughs> laughed. You know, like I'm just a kid from Boston. Right. And I said, "So, how's that going to work?" He said, "Well, you'll go to Cambridge, a right. as if it was like you know, the sun rises in the east and right, sets yeah. in the west." <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really think I could pull it off. You know, I was. Uh, I really grew up, my, my parents, neither of my parents went to university. I really did not have um, a whole lot of advantage. And the thought of doing a PhD was so um, a pie in the sky. But, mm. you know, I said, okay, I'll apply. And then the question became, how am I going to pay for this thing? Right, um, yeah. And then I ended up getting full scholarship, which would have been the only way, the, just the only way I could do it. Um, so, uh, I have really never left school. I've been in school <laughs> since, since I was five and I've never left. Yeah, yeah. And then my evolution as academic bad girl started, um, we have a bit of a bat motif in my family. When my brother was a kid, his kindergarten teacher thought he legitimately believed that he was Batman and was afraid <laughs> that he was going to jump out the window. Right. So um, we have this kind of like uh, dark night theme um, between me and my brother. And then when I wanted to join Twitter, I, I knew that an important thing on social media is to have a unique voice. Yes. You know, you need to 
say something that somebody else doesn't say or say it in a different way or say it in a creative way. And I thought, what if I were to, you know, I'd seen Research Mark and should academics say, which we now know is Nathan Hall, same person behind both of those accounts. And I thought, what if I do something like that? And I just kind of threw a pitch, wondering if this kind of um, humor thing would work. And mm. it, it's been so fun. And that's really why I do it. Uh, for the uninitiated, those who are not part of the Twitterverse, uh, the Dr. Academic Backgirl Twitter account has uh, tens of thousands of followers. Um, and it offers uh, quirky jokes, advice about academia, but also some serious stuff. You also run a blog where you offer writing advice and um, share your experiences about playing hockey again for the first time. Um, yes. <laughs> it's it's very eclectic, but uh, if you had to kind of summarize uh, what you're doing on there, what uh, what would that be? I think what I do is just resonate with what it's like to be an academic. I really try not to be discipline specific. So, you know, what is it like doing these revise and resubmits? What is it like mm. applying for these research grants over and over and getting rejected 90% of the time? You know, yeah. kind of identifying the struggles in academia that sometimes people don't really talk about or we talk about them in a gripey way, but I try to make it funny. Like, oh my God, I'm doing this too. Why are we, why are we doing this? Like, yeah, why, yeah. why is this insanity happening to us over and yeah. over? So it's, uh, it's that resonance, I think, um, that works. Yeah, why are we responding to reviewer number two? It, you know, and then when you think about it, there's a reviewer number two for everything. You know, there's a, view, a reviewer number two book chapter editor and a reviewer number two journal reviewer. There's a reviewer number two student. Yeah. Um, so when you think of that as kind of a motif in your life, it's just like, okay, this is just a test. In addition to uh, running the Twitter account, Barbara, you are also an associate professor at a Canadian university. Mm-hmm. You have some interesting experiences with experiential learning. Talk to us a little bit about where the idea to bring your students camping came from. Well, I've always loved being outside. And, you know, I've done a lot of hiking, mountaineering, um, you know, climbed to mountaintops in Scotland, England, Ireland, Wales, all over the U.S., all over Europe. And I remember when I was in the third grade, in Boston, um, my teacher, it was a really hot day, and my teacher took the whole class outside to play Mad Libs. And mm. we sat in the woods and we played Mad Libs. And I still remember that day and how, um, how liberating that day was where it was like, oh my God, we get to go outside. This is so cool. And everyone was so relaxed and there was something really cohesive about that day that mm. it's kind of like okay all of us are sharing this unusual experience together all 25 of us I guess it was and it felt so great and then as I got further and further in my academic journey less and less time I spent outside because I was you know studying library writing all that yeah. and the time outside had to be so deliberate. Like I had to plan that myself and do that myself. And that's fine because it was kind of a hobby. So when um, I wanted to do this with my undergraduate class, I campaigned the dean and I said, look, I want to teach this new class. And not only do I want to teach this new class, but I want to do it in a different way. So the class was listening, a listening class, because I'm in a communication and digital media studies program. Okay. And I looked at our curriculum, and the curriculum was writing, reading, public speaking, digital storytelling, um, all these communicative activities, but none of them were about listening. So I started doing a little more research on that. And 
Research shows that 75% of our communicative activities on the daily involve listening. Wow. You know, podcast, for example. People listen to podcasts in their car or when they're out taking the dog for a walk or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, isn't it so weird that 75% of our communicative activities are listening, but nobody ever teaches us how to do it? And that just really blew my mind. So that was one aspect of the course. And then the other part, I thought, you know, like we do this three-hour lecture every week for 12 weeks. And I mean, I'll I'll kind of, uh, I don't know, dance around that a little bit, that I don't lecture. Like most of my classes are activities and we do fun stuff and get moving around. But I wanted to make it a totally different experience for students. Like this is not just sitting in a classroom, even doing the activities in the same room every week. So um, I said to the dean, what if I teach two weeks of classes, then take students on a camping trip over the reading week? He said to me, if you get five students to show up, like to take that class, like that's pretty cool. And I thought, dude, this is, you're going to like lose it. Yeah. So um, it was a fourth year elective. I had 33 students sign up. Wow. Yeah. So they, they gave up their reading week to go camping. Hmm. And it was so great because I got, um, I used a, or I paired up, I should say, with a um, local conservation area. And um, they have, food on site so we didn't have to cook our own stuff which was great so for all for the 33 students and myself to stay there for four days and have all the food and stuff the food was amazing too was 149 dollars a student so very affordable to experience the outdoors very affordable and um i mean there was no textbook in the class so they weren't forking out for a textbook. I used all, um, you know, websites, free, freely available course resources. And um, the the coolest thing about taking students on that trip, part of it was the activities we did, the communicative activities. We played lots of communicative games and um, activities about um, leadership and remembering things, um, taking meaning from people, stuff like that. It, It's just that the coolest thing about doing that trip was how everybody came together as a group Mm. because we were all together in this limited space, in this limited time. And, you know, my my students really showed up. They just showed up completely. I don't know. We had fun. Mm. You had mentioned the exercise in listening. Mm-hmm. Um, was this a major component or was this something that you felt that the students were able to get out of the camping trip? It was a major component of the trip. Um, some of the listening activities we did were, uh, the conservation area has um, like a, a low ropes course, for example. So um, students were guiding each other through um, physical challenges like, okay, put your foot here, put your hand here. Um, this kind of stuff. So it was some of the activities were very um, following directions kind of stuff. But some of them were um, more vulnerable, like um, closing your eyes and, you know, being led around. One of the funniest things we did, close your eyes and someone came along and walked you around the room with like a hand on the shoulder and uh, holding your arm. Hmm. And then afterwards, students had to guess who the person was just based on their listening. And, um, you know, some would say, oh, this person was whatever, wearing flip-flops or this person um, had heavy feet, so it must have been a guy. Um, and it was so funny, the, um, the suppositions that people had that were totally wrong. Right. And it was really fun to discover that. I'm hearing lots of learning moments done through activities. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you also bring to your classroom, for example? Absolutely. I can't remember lecturing 
like, I don't know. I mean, I really have trouble going to, you know, guest talks and guest lectures because it's so um, sage on the stagey, right. you know? So all of my classes, they're very activity heavy. Um, so, and one student came in last week and, and he, we were in the middle of class. And then he went to the washroom and came back. So in the three minutes it took him to go to the washroom, came back and everyone was in a different seat with different people. And <laughs> someone else was sitting in his, in his seat. He said, I should have known this was going to happen if I left for two minutes kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's so important, right? Like just to get students moving around and to not be passive and to connect with each other is really important to me. I want all my students to know each other. Have you been successful in developing uh, your own sort of guidelines for teaching assistants or people who you interact with at the university? I really try to um, mentor teaching assistants and kind of, you know, my, my TA shows up for class just because it's fun. Um, right, yeah, yeah. My, I have a, such a wonderful TA in the semester. He's just a gem. Um, Ashton, I'm going to give a shout out to him because he's so great. Um, one of the most important things I think um, in a successful classroom is um, just kind of the notion of of power because students come from high school and they feel like, oh, I got to please my professor. I've got to do the right thing. And oh, there, there's the TA, but the TA doesn't have as much power as the prof and yeah. that kind of thing. And I always tell everybody, you know, my TAs, my students, that no one has power over anybody. We have power together. Mm. And that's, I think, what's, what's really important. We, we need to work together to take risks and explore and whatever. You make a fool out of yourself or, you know, say something weird or funny. That's cool. You mentioned to me this notion of ungrading. And yes. I haven't heard this before. So tell us a little bit about what that is and how you implement it. Ungrading. I really learned about um, from Jesse Stommel on Twitter, who I met on Twitter, and Risa Unruh, who I also met on Twitter. It's kind of, it's, it starts with the premise that um, grades are by nature kind of punitive, right? Like you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this, but if you don't, you get points off. And right. if you don't do this, you get a bad grade. I noticed that um, my students were caring less about feedback and more about the grade. Like, mm -hmm. I could give them an A+, plus and say something, you know, like, your grammar is terrible, blah, blah, blah. But as long as they get an A+, plus, they don't care. Right. So I thought, like, I really want um, this notion of intrinsic learning like learning, wanting to learn from your from your own desire rather than wanting to learn out of fear, mm. right? Yeah. So um, I did this experiment. I'm doing this experiment actually this semester with my fourth year group. And um, I said, look, I'm going to give you feedback. Ashton's going to give you feedback on all of your weekly reflections, on your... Um, project proposal on your, you know, these major assignments, we're going to give you feedback and then you can revise it, you can change it, you can think about how this works for you. And I wanted students to be able to do something that they've never done before and not be afraid mm. that it might not work. Yeah. So what I found is that some of my students who are taking this elective course that I'm teaching you know, they're in legal studies or they're in criminology or forensic psychology. To present their work, they're doing really different stuff, like using Canva mm. to present their, um, their assignments or a pick-to-chart or more creative um, tools to present even their essays or whatever. Um, so I'm getting a lot of non, like, unconventional presentation of work, which is really fun for me to see too. You know, of course I have learning objectives and I have, um, you know, course expectations and all that kind of stuff for yeah. my classes still. Yeah. Um, 
but I kind of, I don't know, I, I, I had this moment of humility where I thought, who am I to judge how much a student learned in this class, mm. right? Mm. You know, the student who, um, I don't know, understands this theory and that theory and whatever, that's cool, but they took a risk by using um, Canva to present their findings of a project. Right. It's kind of cool. Yeah. You know? They're, you know, there's so much more freedom in doing that. And so the, the thing about ungrading is that um, it works in the classroom. It works, you know, with assignments and stuff. And, I, I mean, we're more than halfway through the term. No student has complained saying, you didn't give me a grade because I, right. I give lots of feedback. Um, at the end of the semester, I still have to give them a mark for their transcript. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So how am I going to do that? I wondered. And um, just in, in looking at some of the discourse on Twitter um, and doing some more reading, I'm going to ask students what they think their grade should be. Yeah. You know, I'll say, okay, how did you do on attendance? Did you show up? Did you engage with your classmates? Um, did you talk to other people? Did you um, do the weekly assignments? Did you um, reflect? Did you grow as a human being? Right? So if they can articulate, you know what, I really learned a lot of stuff that I never knew before and I can take this into my life. That's what I want. That's the A+. It has been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you, to chat with you. Um, mask on or mask off, please keep at it. Uh, we need great sidekicks and great superheroes like you in academia. Thank you so much. This was super, super fun. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Next episode will be available for your listening pleasure on April 6th. That one will feature an interview with Tom Kempel from UBC talking about The Watchmen and uh, Illustrated Marks. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to get the newest episodes so you don't miss it. In the meantime, make sure to check out our website, www.departmentpodcast.ca. I'll be uploading material there, and you can find us, as always, on Twitter at departmentpod. And uh, if you're in the city on March 16th, you should uh, check out uh, Jackie Kennelly. She's uh, involved in a talk uh, in the Dominion Chamber Centre, uh, which is called Youth in the City, uh, as part of the broader Fast Healthy City series. Uh, thanks, everyone. Talk soon. That's awesome. Make sure to check out that event and others that are happening in and around campus and Ottawa. And hey, thanks for listening.